Good morning, church family. Let's do that again. I have to do that with the kids, so I have to do it with the adults as well. Good morning, church family. Good morning. Thank you. Well, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We're almost there. 2023, I've heard many people say, was the fastest year that I've ever experienced. I don't know if you felt like that. I certainly felt like that. For those that don't know me, I'm John Klobuchar. My wife and I, Cindy, have been, and our family have been attending here just about 10 years here at Clayton Valley Church. I used to serve on the deacon board, and I'm currently actually one of the local missionaries here for Clayton Valley Church. I serve with Barry Chaplains. Barry Chaplains is the chaplain agency that provides chaplain services for the jails within Contra Costa County. And um, I, going into this year, I uh, just ask you pray for us. Uh, every season is a different one. Every thing we run into is different, but God has been quite faithful in our ministry, and we've had favor uh, at that jail for going on well over 10 years, and it's amazing. I, I'm honored to serve there. I, I often tell people this, I, this was the only thing that God could call me to do. And this church was a very large part of that. For those that know, Harold Albert uh, was one of the founding members of uh, uh, Barry Chaplains and just seamlessly found my way into uh, uh, working for Barry Chaplains, serving the Lord. All right, any high school literature nuts out there? Anyone remember their high school literature classes? Okay. So if I say John Steinbeck, what, what novels come to mind? Oh, good. All right. We went right off the back. So you can, you can finish this quote for me. Or actually, you know the quote I'm going to say? The better laid, oh, come on, plans of mice and men often go awry. And I thought I was going to get a winner there. So um, this is actually taken from a Scottish poem. It was written by Robert Burns sometime in the late 18th century. And when I read up on it, apparently what happened is he was digging up his field. He was plowing his field. And he actually pl plowed up a family of mice. And apparently he felt bad about it. And he wrote, wrote this, uh, this poem in regards to that. And I'm going to read the last two stanzas. I apologize in advance. This is old English, but it's better than the Gaelic that it was originally in. So. <laughs> And I don't read Gaelic. But mouse, you are not alone. Improving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men go off to rye and leave us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy. Still, you are blessed compared to me. The present only touches you. But oh, I backward cast my eye on prospects dreary. And forward through, I cannot see, I guess and fear. Essentially, he has a dim look on the future. What he's experienced in life is that the best plans that he can make or the best plans he sees people make around him, they go awry. He thinks the mouse is in a better place because the mouse just lives for today. This is, uh, reminds me of the book Ecclesiastes, where all is what futile, um, emptiness to life's purposes. And that's true, right? It's kind of without a sure foundation, a sure hope, the plans of mice and men will go astray. I meant to put the quote up there. There it is. And today we're going to find ourselves back in the Gospel of Luke. And 
before our break for Advent, we were in the Gospel of Luke. Today we're going to be in chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. So as you turn there, click there, um, I believe it's in page, yeah, page 49 if you're using the Bible in front of you. I just want to kind of catch us up where, where we were. It's been about a month since we've been in Luke. Now the Gospel of Luke, Luke begins with Luke saying why he wrote this account. He gives us his very reason that he wrote it. He's, and he's writing to one person, but now we have this knowing why he wrote it. He says this in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of these things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now, this is similar to John's gospel, uh, who, what is what written that we might believe. Uh, Luke wants to instill confidence, confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ by giving an account that is orderly. He wants to instill to the per those, who wrote, those he wrote to then, to Theophilus, a confidence, a confidence that these things occurred, a confidence that the trust that, that he is most likely placed in Jesus Christ is a firm foundation. And what we have with the Gospel of Luke is really part one of two, the second being the uh, Acts of the Apostles. Today's text, as you'll see, the, the choosing of the 12 uh, uh, apostles actually links us right into the pathway to head into Acts after, after Luke. And up until now, we have been seeing a narrative. A narrative, if you read Mark, if you read Luke, if you read really any of the Gospels, it's really a, if you're looking at it fresh, and we all should, it, it's one of surprise. It's one of unexpected turns. It's one of what, what people's expectations are, are not necessarily found in Jesus right off. We've been surprised by the birth of John the Baptist. He was born to a priest, Zacharias, and his barren wife, Elizabeth. In that sense, we're surprised. A barren, older woman should not give birth. And yet we're not surprised. Why? Because God's faithfulness throughout history with Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah, with the birth of Isaac. Also with the birth of Joseph, we have uh, Jacob's barren wife, Sarah, um, sorry, <laughs> Rebecca. Bad note there, John. As one of Jacob's 12 sons were the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel. We've been surprised most in chapter 2. What we celebrated last week, what we've been celebrating this whole month, the Advent, that Jesus Christ came to us. God broke 400 years of silence. How? By becoming a baby in a manger. By what? Becoming like a servant. By becoming a servant, why? To give his life as a ransom for many. This should be surprising us every day. We should be refreshed by that every day. We should be honing on that every day. Run to Christ every single time you, you read the scriptures. Yet we're not surprised by that if we look back, because why? Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. This was the sign that Isaiah spoke about in chapter 7. And the, and the text we find ourselves in today it's, it's what you might consider a bit of a transition point in Jesus' ministry. Jesus has attracted both positive and negative, and negative attention by his claiming and demonstrating his authority. Right before this, Jesus had claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath, and he heals a man on the Sabbath. 
claiming that it was good. Before this, he asked a provocative question about what is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or evil, to save life or to destroy it. And Jesus sees the Sabbath from the perspective of the lawgiver, from the perspective of the creator, who has given the Sabbath for his image, for us, which he has created. A New, New Testament scholar, um, Daniel Bach, stated that is a relational view from ones whose mission is to reconcile himself to humanity. This is why Jesus entered this world. This is why he took on flesh, to reconcile us to him. Further, the implication here is the current leadership is, what? They're plotting evil and filled with rage. They discuss what they might do to with Jesus, but we'll hold that thought for right now. And this was the latest episode after he declared in chapter four that he was the anointed one, the Messiah, the one to bring about the promises of Isaiah 61. What was that? To bring good news to the poor, freedom to the oppressed, sight for the blind. The circle of those who became insiders are both surprising but, but expanding, which creates opposition because he's associating with who? the likes of tax collectors and sinners. This brings us to our text today where we see Luke's record of Jesus calling to the 12 apostles. Could you stand with me as we read today's text? Again, Luke chapter six, verses 12 through 16. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, who he also called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Father, we are amazed. We've, we want to be surprised, God. We want to be continually surprised at your, the depth of your love for us. May we, as we look at your word today, God, look at it afresh, look at it in a way that we just know you better, God. For that is what you say eternal life is, to know you. May we know you in, from your word to follow you better, represent you to a world that needs you. For your sake we pray, amen. May we see it. So, our uh, theme for today is going to be Luke 6, 12 through, oh, thank you for clipping that for me. I forgot I have a clipper. Um, Luke 6, 12 through 16, the church's foundation. And the first thing that we're going to see today is we can have confidence in the church's foundation because because, um, I can't read that from here, it's founded in God's will and eternal fellowship and that God is indeed Trinity. The first thing we notice here is that Jesus' priority of prayer demonstrates to us that we can have confidence in God's church because he is, it is rooted in his eternal fellowship with the Father. The nature of his eternal existence in community, in constant communication, and in the case of Jesus becoming dependent, submitting to the Father's will, prayer was absolutely vital to him doing God's will. But the question is, what exactly is prayer? 
I found this quote just yesterday, and I liked it because it fit. Prayer is the relational communication with God that's specifically designed to release will from heaven to history. Is that what, is that what you see prayer as? It's not that prayer isn't some things. It isn't that we don't bring our requests to God. He's, I, I often, when I'm meeting with inmates, I'm telling them, come to God as you are. Come right now. Don't, don't wait. Go to him. Go to him. He already knows what's on your mind. But ultimately, this is, this is the foundation of prayer. It's to do God's will. Seek his will. Uh, Jesus' own example of prayer from his disciples, it mirrors this exact thing. It's, the first two lines is, is to acknowledge God. I'll acknowledge the Father whom he submitted to, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as what is, is in heaven. To bring heaven's will down to us. That is indeed ought to be our focus in prayer. Jesus' own priestly prayer in, gospel, in uh, John 17 makes one of the clearest statements about the nature of eternal life the very thing that Jesus is coming down to gain for us. And what is it? That this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do now. Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. And this is... Jesus' communion with the Father in prayer. Its purpose, it, it has no other purpose other than to do the will of the Father. And what is that? To bring the will of the Father to earth. Jesus' eternal communion, now dependent, now dependent through prayer, because he has what he has come, become like us. He must go up the mountain. He must seek his Father, seek communion with his Father to what? To pray that his will be done. Secondly, prayer is founded in God's will in eternal fellowship, but we can also have confidence in the church foundation because it is rooted in God's covenant faithfulness. God is indeed faithful. Artificial intelligence. Anyone, anyone have experience with it? I think we do whether we know it or not. It's here, it's not going away. I'm not an expert, but in my limited spheres, if you spend any time on social media, what are you seeing? Um, you're seeing all kinds of memes and information. Are they called bots? Do I have that right? Bots that actually create replies in, in social media, and you might think it's a real person. And that soon becomes what? That soon becomes information that we start to lean to believe is true. We start to believe that we need to depend on that. Hey, have you seen that? Have you heard that? And what happens when a news source gets something out first is, is when's the what's the retraction usually do? Usually doesn't do anything. It's usually that first hit, that first thing we see. And here it is, we're living in an age of artificial intelligence. But the, the, key, the key to this, in this age of memes, where uh, it's, it's the short pity statements that um, sometimes create thoughts and, 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 and uh, create, creates beliefs in our mind, this intelligence is not the original source, nor is anything new. I, we just talked about the blue, uh, book of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new. There's absolutely nothing new under the sun. 
all these things come from one source, the, the father of lies. Wants us to be confused, wants us not to understand. We have to run back then to what is actually true. And this is a bit anecdotal, but, but that's, I'm constantly experiencing that where I hear, hey, did you see this? Did you hear this? Hey, I, I, I saw this and I'm, I, I, out of the back of my mind I say, I might have saw a meme about that or I might have saw something on social media that didn't sound, didn't, didn't look all that reliable and yet it's now being perpetuated as truth. And it's difficult then to know what is true anymore. We need a, a permanent foundation that is dependable, rooted in God's covenant faithfulness. And the, and the choosing of the twelve is just that. Here we have Luke's called groups of apostle as he lists their names. Um, and there's a distinction here. We have two groups. Well, we have, we have one group and then one subgroup, really. Disciples are those that are all following Jesus, all who have turned to follow him, a group. Uh, we eventually get to what is 70 that are sent out, but you have the 12. The 12 being very distinct. The 12 being, the word apostle really means to, um, uh, to, 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 uh, um, it's actually a nautical term, which I found very interesting and fun. If you know me by now, those, those are my favorite. Um, but in classical Greek, it really has the idea of um, being called out or sent out, being sent out for a particular purpose. In this case, it would mean like a ship would go out and go out on, on the Caesar's command in order to convey Caesar's will. And it denotes special authority. The apostles have special authority. They are the foundation. In the books of Acts, we see the authority displayed as the apostles go about, go about teaching, preaching, performing miracles, uh, doing things in uh, in Jesus' name. We see this later in Luke as the, as the 70 are sent out, or the, or the 12, and then the 70 are sent out. But this provides us confidence because it means we serve under an assured authority. This authority is ultimately in Christ himself. Now, Ephesians 2 is one of those chapters that is confident building. For those that know it, it talks about how while we were hopelessly hopelessly caught up in a life separated from God, dead, literally dead in our trespasses and sin. That one line of verse four, but God, what? Rich in mercy, in his love, made us alive. Only by his mercy, only through his love made us alive. And yet in the conclusion of that chapter, we read this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are on God's household, having been built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being what? The cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple, a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. But if we go back to our main passage, we go back to uh, Luke 6, and we look at verses 13 and 16 in this passage, there's something extremely telling. The 12 signifies a confidence we can have. Why? Because God is consistently faithful. The 12 ought to spark us back to how God was faithful with Israel. He was faithful with those um, um, throughout Israel's history to the 12 tribes. Um, 
And that's the something new is rooted in the God who has always been faithful. So what is new? What is being, what is being done differently? Hello? Am I still on? Okay. What is being done differently is rooted in God who is always, he's always been faithful. And he will continue to be faithful. And the new is not, is necessarily because of what we discussed earlier from the gospel, John, that his own did not receive him. This is part of the faithfulness of God, that he would be rejected. There would be a continual rejection of him, and yet he's the one who remains faithful. But what does the following verse Verses say in John 1 about those who do not do receive him. It says, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave what? The right to be children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And you know what? Here's where we have the answer to Jude's question, Judas's question. I didn't ask a question about Judas, but when we read this passage, it implies a question. What about Jesus? Why was he chosen? Well, God has been faithful that his will is accomplished in the midst of what people mean for evil. It's what the cross speaks. Judas stands in this long history of those who reject God's favor by rejecting the one chosen. Abraham really rejected God's promise of the blessing of his son through Sarah initially in favor of his own, of, of gaining his own firstborn through uh, Sarah's maidservant Hagar. Yet God is faithful in providing that son, Isaac. Jacob's son reject their father's, Jacob's favored son, Joseph, sell him into slavery. And yet in God's faithfulness, the sons are reunited when the rejection of Joseph becomes the very means of keeping the promise alive through the 12 sons of Jacob. As Jacob himself says in Genesis 50, and speaking about his brothers, his brothers who are scared to death of him at this point, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. King Saul rejects and attempts to kill God's anointed David. Yet as we now know, it's the greatest evil, the one that is perpetuated perpetrated by one of the chosen that is anticipated here that Jesus once again accepts in this night of communion with God because he knows where this is headed he will eventually lay out to his disciples what will happen they won't be happy with this new des- this this new plan but he knew this of course he spent all night in prayer of course he needed to commune with his father of course he needed that and as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12 it was because of the joy set before him, that he went forward with this plan, the plan A of having one of his own reject him, reject him so that what? That we could have salvation. We can have confidence in the church's foundation because it is a foundation in God's will in eternal fellowship it is rooted in God's covenant faithfulness. Oh. And lastly, it is dependent on God's unmerited favor. God is gracious. Here at Clayton Valley Church, I 
I, I, I believe we are blessed. Um, the, the leadership that we have, uh, Chris and Andrew and Eric, um, we can't, I couldn't be more for grateful for those whom God has chosen to lead this church, those who God have placed here to shepherd us. Now, I didn't survey them. I'm sure they're going to agree with this. But I'm certain what they would say is they agree that is even a matter of God's grace. They're called to serve Clayton Valley Church by God's grace. Every day I'm reminded in the jail, and you would think that would potentially be the opposite end where I need to be reminded of God's grace, but it's exactly where I need to be reminded of God's grace every single day. Coming in contact with those who have known nothing but brokenness, known nothing but um, pain and uh, rejection and, and those things, and, and certainly heinous things that, they've, they, they, that many of them have done. But I'm, I'm constantly reminded of the grace of God, the, the need for the grace of God in my own life. And yet we look, and this is, this, is a, this is a confidence builder, this is comforting, because we take one look at the list of the apostles, and who's at the top? Simon. Simon, who's also called what? Peter. What does Peter mean? Petros. What does that mean? You can answer. Rock. Yeah, that's the name that Jesus gave him, the rock. Now, I took this from R.C. Sproul because I felt a little uncomfortable doing it myself, but <laughs> if we were to choose a nickname by our estimation of Peter, he's often impetuous, standing in opposition to Jesus' will, denies Jesus at his darkest hour, even needs constant correction from the Apostle Paul. Perhaps he should have been given the nickname Sand rather than rock. R.C., not me. <laughs> but it's true. How much of us can confess or are willing to confess? I am, I am sand. I need another foundation. Yet Jesus is following the sermon Following this sermon, in the sermon, we'll talk about denying how denying his lordship is, is like building what? Your house on the sand. Those who heed his words are like those who build their house upon a foundation on the rock where neither flood nor torrent bursts can shake it off because of the matter in which it's built. These 12 represent the foundation of that building, but only because of God's unmerited favor because of his grace, because he chose them, not because he chose him. Back to Ephesians 2, this is the foundation of our own salvation, right? Grace by faith as a gift from God, not of ourselves, never of ourselves. You know, before we get to the bold Peter of Acts, by grace we see in the Gospel of John how Peter was restored to ministry by Jesus himself, following his death Death on his behalf and his resurrection, Jesus by grace, the grace which now is fully capable of restoring is bestowed on Peter. Peter himself writes this in 1 Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, 
Who are we protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? He could write this because he needed it himself. Grace is not only the foundation from which anyone can truly be saved. It's really the only means by which we can serve. We can't serve as a church with one another, nor in the midst of a broken world, without God's grace. And really, it's grace upon grace. Grace from God is that favor, that favor that we don't earn, we don't deserve because of who we are, no, in spite of who we are. If we cannot see these 12 disciples are chosen over Israel's current leadership because of any other reason than grace, we miss the point of the gospel. We see that this within the makeup of the disciples themselves. How else can a tax collector from Rome and a zealot be reconciled to God and be with one another and serve him together if it were not by, for God's grace? And following Christ means participation with Christ. Partition, participation with Christ means we are in the reconciling business. We're chosen to do his work, to be about reconciling um, our messy lives with one another. Doing church isn't always perfect, far from it, but we have a God who is perfect, who graces us with that perfection, who's, who's taken us to the point where we can know him. We can know him, and when he returns, we'll be like him. That's the promise. But right now, we're working these things out amongst one another, and grace can be the only foundation for that, because without grace, we're, we're not going to view one another as we ought to. The perfect God of this universe in Jesus Christ did what? For the joy set before him. Again, endured the cross for sinners. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. The foundation is always on grace. It's always based on God's character. It's always based on what he has done. It's always based on his promises, which always come to pass. Earlier, he talked about the need for new wineskins. To me, that means brand new wineskins, never been used before. No. <laughs> He's making us into new wineskins. In one sense, we are already new wineskins. We are already justified. We are already his. We are his children by grace. We are those he sees through his son. We are that new wineskin, but perfected by his grace alone. So what does this mean? If we go back to the Robert Burns quote, I think he had it sort of right. I think I've, I catch myself saying this all the time at jail, but the better laid plans of mice and men, the better laid plans of John Klobuchar often go astray. But because of his grace, when we show up, when we fellowship together, when we see his will in front of us and says, I don't know about that. If we, if we with that mustard seed of faith, uh, step out, and this happens to me all the time at jail, I don't want to go see this person. This person is going to waste my time. And these, stuff, these, these thoughts go through my mind. And yet God's grace is ahead of me. Every time, preparing me. Like, uh, why did I not trust you again? It sits there, begging us. Why? Because our plans will fail. His do not. 
in light of our need for God's grace, perhaps it's better to say the better laid plans of mice and men will always go astray except for the foundation of grace, of the grace that God has laid. And the question for all of us is where, where do you find your hope? We're about to turn the corner into a new year. All kinds of uncertainty. Yeah, the economy's doing good. There's other stuff we're worried about. There's stuff on social media we don't know if it's true. There are certainly things within the culture that are very alarming, very scary. And yet we have a sure foundation, a sure hope. This Jesus, the one who became dependent, do you depend on him entirely? Let me rephrase that. Do we, do I, depend on him entirely? I think the simple answer is no. We need to get there. And reflecting on these apostles, yes, even Lazarus, cause you to have confidence in the faithfulness of God alone? A few weeks ago, Chris was looking at the book of Philippians. And what is the first, one of the first things that Paul says out of the gate? He who began a good work in you will what? Finish it. That you is plural, by the way. We're to do that together. We're to work this out together. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling together. We're to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, together. Because as we started this whole thing, this, this passage, and we see Jesus, Jesus going up the mountain to the God that he's always had fellowship with and who now he has to approach in prayer and be in prayer with, he has invited us into that space with him. We're seated on high with him. All these promises about what he says about his church are true because he has made it true, because he has came down, because he has saw fit to build a foundation by grace. And as soon as we understand that, and I don't yet, I'm getting there, it is the only way we can then move forward and serve him properly. And that's the, that's the lesson with these apostles. Yes, even Lazarus. Why? Because he was faithful even appointing Lazarus. How about when we gather together? How do we see one another? Especially ourselves. As those because of God's great mercy and love. And love, the, the only, it is only by his grace, it is only by his love, it's only by his mercy that we find ourselves alive in him. Do, I see, do we see one another in that way? And do I see myself in that way? It's really easy, go back to my context at jail, to get outside of that. And yet at the foot of the cross, there's, it, is, it is a straight line. We are, we are at the foot of the cross on equal ground before God. Are you seeking to be continually surprised at the sure foundation God has given us in Jesus Christ? I, I, this is probably not new. I think I have epiphanies once in a while, but I, I thought of, is there, a, is there a calculation that we could do to say how God eternally, infinite, became man, became a baby, could die? Is there, is there a number you could divide by that could show the amount of humility he showed us in that? The thing about Jesus is he's, he's never less than Lord and Savior 
It is pre that, is, that is the primary thing we need to remember. He is the God of this universe. He is Yahweh. He is the one who is the lawgiver. He is the one who we ought to submit our wills to. And yet he all, he's also what our example. Come here to take on flesh, to remain that way for eternity for, forward for our sake, that he might reign and rule, reign and rule as a God-man because he's made us to be with him and rule with him. Does that surprise you? It needs to surprise us more. Lastly, if there are questions that still linger in your mind, and you don't know, do, should I trust this Jesus? This seems like an awful lot of things to understand first before I even kind of contemplate following this Jesus or putting my trust in him. But let me tell you, as I, as I say this, I hope what you're hearing is that this is stuff I need to learn. I need to continue to remind myself of. I, I think you'll, you'll find everyone in here who's made this journey of faith, who's turned to Christ, put their faith in him, repented and turned to him, they, they'll be happy to discuss with you how their foundation is the very thing we're talking about today. God's grace, God's faithfulness. And for us all today, what I pray for is that 2024 will be a year for all of us to wonder and marvel at the love and grace of God, the foundation that he created, the foundation that we now find ourselves in and on, a firm foundation, one that will not be shaken, one that will carry us on until Jesus returns. May 2024 be a year of you trusting that more, wondering at that more, marveling at that more, falling in love more with Jesus, following him better, and represent him to this world that needs him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you saw fit to send your son. Saw fit to choose people that we, quite frankly, can relate with to be that foundation. And the foundation for them is the same for us by grace. God, may we understand that more than ever that we are sand without you. But because of you, we are living stones. We are those who you have placed your presence in. God, may we represent that to this world, God. May we see this new year as an opportunity, God, a, a, a year that will most certainly bring about more division, certainly bring about more strife. We have an election year coming up, God, and, and we pray, uh, I would pray for unity in, in one direction or the other, but. God, it's often in these hardest times, in these struggling times, these times of division, God, that you, you work. You came into our broken world, God. You suffered. You were rejected on behalf of us, and we have the greatest hope because of that. May that be always forefront in our mind as we look to love you more, serve you better, and love one another. For your sake we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, John.